As you see on your screens, the title of today's message is the most misunderstood word in the Bible. I need to say something. I really have no idea whether it is or isn't. Okay, it's a cool title. Um, I don't have data. I don't have a survey that I can point to and say this clearly proves that this word is the most misunderstood word in the Bible. But I do have a lot of years following Jesus, and I do have a lot of years leading a local church. And so if you were to ask me if this is the most misunderstood word in the Bible, I'd say my experience says yes. All right, so how does this word show up in its misuse? The Bible commands that drunkenness is a sin. You have one or two too many, and you use this word to kind of shrug your shoulders at something that the Bible clearly says is a sin. The Bible says that no unwholesome word should proceed from our mouth, but, you know, you hit your thumb with a hammer and you let a word fly that you know you shouldn't, and you break that command of Scripture, and you go, oh, well, and you use this word. Uh, you are, are watching something on television, and it makes you angry. Angry enough that you say something very unkind to the TV, the person on the TV. Maybe, maybe even something that could be classified as hateful. And you think, well, I, I know I broke that command, but then you use this word. Or someone cuts you off in traffic. And you fly into a rage and you break knowingly and willingly and enthusiastically the command to be angry and not sin. And you go, oh well, and you use this word. What is this word? This word is the word grace. I know I shouldn't, I know that was a sin, but grace, and essentially in those situations what you are doing is you are defining the word by your usage like this. Grace means that I can sin without consequence. I am a follower of Jesus. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, the judgment under which I reside because of sin has been removed and paid for in full by Jesus Christ. So now, as a follower of Jesus, when I sin, it's no big deal. As a follower of Jesus, I can sin without consequence. And when I hear that out of my own mouth or when I hear that out of the words of others, I turn into my little inner Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. And I keep saying, you, you're using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Because here's what grace ultimately means, and Paul's going to share this with us on the, on the pages of Scripture this morning. Grace means, or at least the implications of it are, that you have a choice as to which master you will serve. And we're going to see that as we look at Romans chapter 6, verses 15, and the verses that follow. So if you would please find Romans chapter 6. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that I said Romans chapter 6 is framed by two rhetorical questions that Paul anticipates from his audience based on what he has shared in Romans chapter 5. 
In Romans chapter 5, he's talked about what grace is. And so anticipating the questions that his audience may have, he anticipates this first question. The first question was, we looked at it last week, well, if grace is so big that it covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it just make sense that I should send all I can so that grace can be celebrated even more? And Paul uses words in his language that uh, basically are his way of saying, you idiot. (laughs) He says, by no means. That's not true at all. And then he deals with that in the first 14 verses of Romans 6. In the verses that we come to today, he deals with the misconception that we are dealing with. The idea that because I'm a follower of Jesus, sin's not that big a deal, and I can sin without consequence. He gives voice to it in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And then he has his words where he and his language is saying, you idiot. He says, by no means. How could you ever think that? If you really understood grace, if you really understood salvation, why would you ever think such a foolish thing? And then he introduces an illustration that he will later in this text admit is an imperfect illustration. The illustration is the illustration of slavery. And it needs to be explained a little bit in our audience because, you see, our experience as Americans and in the West with slavery is of a kind of slavery that the Old Testament condemns as punishable by death. Ours was the kind of slavery where a person was kidnapped and brought into servitude forever. That is not the kind of slavery that Paul has in mind, something condemned again roundly and robustly by the Old Testament. What he has in mind is the kind of slavery that existed in his day whereby someone, destitute, unable to make ends meet at all, on the verge and brink of starvation, would willingly relinquish their freedom and personal autonomy to someone of greater wealth to serve them free of charge in exchange for the basic necessities of life. That's what he has in mind, and we're going to see that in verse 16 in in just a moment. Now... It's not without its abuses, and and Paul knows of those abuses, and so that is why later in this text he'll say, I get this is an imperfect illustration. But sometimes you use imperfect illustrations to communicate most clearly and most vividly. So here's when he gets into slavery as a way of illustrating what grace demands of us. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He introduces the idea that maybe has not occurred to us before that everybody's a slave to something. We are either slaves to sin and our impulses, or we are slaves to righteousness through Christ. And the currency of slavery is obedience. So he's saying here, I can tell who your true master is by just observing who you obey. So his point is, if you think that grace gives you license to sin without consequence and therefore you can sin all you want, all you're really telling me is that Jesus is not your real master. Sin is your real master. And he's going to develop that idea more fully. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, letting us know he's talking to Christians who are entertaining this notion, you who were once slaves, 
slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He deals here in those two verses with three misconceptions. One we've touched on, now we'll be more explicit with it. The misconception is, um, I uh, am free, uh, I'm autonomous. He's saying, no, you're not. You're either a slave to your impulses or your sin, or you're a slave to righteousness, you're a slave to Jesus. No one is truly free in a, a broader, eternal sense. You're either slaves of this master or you are slaves of that master. That's the first uh, implication, um, the misunderstanding of the nature of things that he addresses. The next thing that he addresses is the idea that uh, somehow becoming a Christian absolves you of any kind of moral or ethical imperative. In other words, the idea is, is that Christianity is just like a hall pass. And everything that we see in Scripture from that point on is a mere suggestion. Uh, you know, I, I recommend, Jesus is saying, that you do this to optimize your life so that you can have your best life right now. There's no imperative. There's no, there's no commands anymore. And he says that's not true. And the reason we know that's not true is because he speaks of Christianity as being a standard of teaching to which you are committed and then explains that in verse 18 in terms of obedience. So there are ethical imperatives even for Christians. There are moral imperatives even for Christians. The final misconception that he deals with is the misconception that somehow all of this depends on my discipline and my will. The idea, again, being that what Jesus is calling me to do is just suck it up and try really hard to please him as I'm my master. But he says that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about an obedience that isn't spurred along by the will or discipline. I'm talking about an obedience that comes from a transformed heart. Obedience, he says, from the heart so that I am made to want what my master Jesus wants. That's far different than discipline and the will. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're trying to lose weight and you love pizza and what you want is the whole pizza. You want all of it. You don't want to share you're going you're gonna to cut off someone's hand if they grab it. You want the whole pizza, but you want to lose weight, and so you deny what you really want, the pizza, to have one slice so you can get this magic goal weight reached, which you can live in for two weeks and then go back to eating whole pizzas. <laughs> Discipline in the will teaches you to deny what you really want for the sake of something better. That's not what the obedience to Jesus as our master is. It is a change of heart wrought by the person and presence of Jesus in our lives that makes us, from the overflow of this trans, uh, transformation, want what our master, Jesus, wants. Now, at the beginning of verse 19, he introduces the idea, I get this is imperfect. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I'm speaking in human terms. I, I get that this is not perfect, but it, it, it communicates this. And I want you all to hear what I have to say. He says this in, verse, in the rest of verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Just as you presented your entire body, 
This is what he means by your members. Just as you presented your entire body to obey the impulses of sin, you are as a master, uh, as, uh, with Jesus as your master, you're to present your whole body, all of yourself, in obedience to your master, Jesus. So that's where he's really getting there. That's If you want to kind of have a main point of the text, that's kind of where it is in verse 19. In light of the fact that we have experienced the grace that gives us choice as to who our real master will be, we need to present our full selves to Jesus, which leads us to think, well, you know, this seems like uh, this has made life more complicated. One of the interesting ways of presenting the, the Christian faith to non-believers that existed when I was in in high school and early adulthood is to lead with the uh, idea that Jesus loves you and wants you to have a wonderful life. But if you really hear the implications of the gospel, your initial reaction might be, well, that seems like a far more difficult way to live. I mean, that seems like that's going to complicate things. Seems like to me that before Jesus started meddling around, I could do what I wanted to. Didn't have to worry about anything. I mean, I, I could just decide what I wanted and, and do it. I could decide whether something was right or wrong within my own self. It seems to me like it's, it's easier to just live with sin as my master because sin as my master essentially lets me do what I want to do. He addresses that beginning in verse 20. He says, for you were slaves of sin. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There was no ethical imperative on your life. There was no moral demand placed on your life. You could just do what you wanted to. He says, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But then in verse 21, he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? These things that you say, I get it wrong, and they are, are contrary to what God's revealed word is. He says, okay, well, what, what did you get from those things? And he goes on to say, you got death. The end of those things is death, separation from the Lord. This is the point of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, our sin, our sinful selves separate us and eternally damn us before the Lord. It, it brings spiritual death into our lives. So he's just saying, think of what that got you. Think of what that got you. Then he says, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, bear in mind, he's talking about a misconception about grace which would lead you to think that because you're a follower of Jesus, you can sin all you want to and there's no consequence. But he says, why would you do that which killed you as a way of life when you have an opportunity now with Jesus as your master to live a life that becomes more like his, that's what sanctification is, and then ends in not separation and spiritual death, but ends in being with Jesus, being with uh, our triune God for eternity forever, eternal life. Why would, why would you do that? And then he uh, kind of summarizes that little thought with one of the most famous verses in the book of Romans. For the wages of sin, what you earn because of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the question is, does following Jesus mean that I can sin without consequence? And his answer is, no. That's not what it means. What it means is that you now have an opportunity to live 
for the service of a master that will bring you life and change you forever into the image of Jesus. Let me give you two handles, and then we're going to go through an exercise that I think is really important this morning. Two handles for the text, just so you can kind of know what it was all about when you go to bed at night, okay? Number one, this text shows us that grace does not free us to sin. It does not free us to sin. Any thought that because your sin has been forgiven and judgment has been removed from you because of the life and work of Jesus Christ that would lead you to think that you can sin all you want to and it doesn't matter is a false notion of Christianity and, in fact, calls into question whether you've really experienced Jesus at all as Savior. Right? So that's the first thing. Grace doesn't free us to sin. Instead, grace frees us to be slaves to God. Frees us from the sin that killed us to be slaves to God, which ends in our becoming more like Jesus and being with him forever. So no, no, grace does not give you a hall pass to sin. Now, the, the kind of text that we have just read and the kind of message that we have just had from it has a peculiar effect on us as followers of Jesus. I know this because I am a follower of Jesus. And it's, it's like this. You listen to it, you hear those points, and you go, man, I know some people that needed to hear this. I do. I can think of this person, and they do stuff, and this person, and they do stuff, and this person, they do stuff, and they claim to be followers of Jesus. Man, if they'd have been here, pastor would have just told them. What we do is we use this text as a window to look out into the world and cherry-pick those things that we see other people doing that we don't struggle with and then pronounce them to be living a kind of life that we ourselves would never live. Here's what happens, folks. Very important to know. We grade everybody else by the book. We grade ourselves on the curve when it comes to our morality. So what we do is we have this little package of sins that we never struggle with, and we use that as the standard by which we judge the entire world, and then we just grace with the things that we really struggle with. What God intends for us to do with what we have just seen in Romans chapter 6 is not use it as a window to look at the world, but instead use it as a mirror to where we see those areas of our lives where we use grace as an excuse to keep doing what we want to do. And everybody does it, speaker included. Everybody does it. So what, what can we do to turn Scripture into a mirror where we really wrestle with what it's saying to us, and live the kinds of lives in obedience to our Master Jesus that please Him. With that in mind, let's do an exercise from the Sermon on the Mount. If you would please find Matthew chapter 5. This is kind of Jesus' uh, stump speech, as it were. It shows up in a couple of different places in the, in the New Testament where He just kind of lays out what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he speaks to this idea of grading everybody by the book and grading ourselves by the curve by listing the impossibly low standards 
that we have for obedience and then saying, but it's really this. And this is where we start to wrestle with the uh, very real presence of us shoulder shrugging sin. So Jesus has, or Paul has said that we need to present our members, our entire selves to our master Jesus as slaves to righteousness using the Sermon on the Mount. Let's first present our minds. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We read that. The natural inclination is to say, well, I hadn't killed anybody. A pretty low bar, right? I mean, a pretty low bar to clear. And killed anybody, but Jesus goes to the root of murder to anger, and we shoulder shrug anger. Let me ask you I want you to assess right now how often you indulge your anger, how often you feed your anger through news, through social media, through having like minded conversations with similarly minded people. I want you to think about how it is so easy for us to just feed an anger which causes us to rage against everybody that's not like us. What you're doing is shoulder shrugging a standard of teaching that you've committed yourself to in Christ. Do you present your mind in terms of your anger? in service to your master, Jesus. Let's look down at verse 27 and present to Jesus our eyes. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, low standard adultery, and he goes deeper, and he says, let's go to the lust that drives it. And... Men, it's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's speaking to men who say, well, my marriage is bad. Or who rationalize it saying, it's not hurting anybody. What they're doing is using grace as a way of saying, oh, well, I'm saved anyway, to keep doing what they want to do, to be slaves to sin and not slaves to righteousness, are you presenting your eyes to Jesus, your master? Let's present our wedding ring finger. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot there. Let's just generally say that there are exceptions to the never divorce rule. Jesus has just given us one, sexual immorality. The other things that show up by way of principle are an abandonment of the commitment to marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which can extend to things like an abusive situation or someone just walking away. There are exceptions to the never divorce rule on the pages of the New Testament, but let's be very honest. Most of the divorce we encounter 
in churches like ours has nothing to do with those exceptions and is instead a way of us projecting our happiness in a way that overlays God's command to holiness and us telling ourselves, I know it's wrong, but God really wants me to be happy. Grace, are you presenting your wedding ring finger to the Lord? Let's present our mouths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus is speaking to is the way that people, particularly religious people of his time, would shade the truth in order to keep from doing something they really should do or to shade the truth maybe to keep from hurting someone's feelings or shade the truth to accomplish a greater good. And that exists in our lives as well where we shade the truth in ways that we can rationalize and justify. But at the end of the day, it's us shoulder shrugging, saying, I know that we should be honest and truthful in our communication, but grace. Let's present to Jesus our fist. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is obviously a, a command to not retaliate. How, how well do you hold a grudge? You say, well, I've forgiven the person. I don't trust the person. And I get that there's a level of trust that has to be earned back. But most of the time, when I say that, I'm just baptizing my continued grudge. I'm just baptizing my continued grudge. And I know I shouldn't feel that way about that person, and I know I should forgive, but grace. Finally, let's present to Jesus our heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You say, I don't hate anybody. You know what I could do right now? I guarantee I could do it. I won't. Rest assured, I won't. You can rest easy. But I could spend about the next 30 seconds showing faces from our news cycle up there, about one every two or three seconds, and routinely you would feel a deep visceral reaction. Now, you might be able to convince yourself you don't hate that person whose face shows up there, but you sure don't love them. And you say, well, I know I should do better but I really don't like what that person stands for. I don't like what that person stands for, so I'm going to do it anyway in grace. Using grace in ways we've never thought of as permission to sin without consequence. Thankfully, Matthew 5 is over, and we don't have anything else we have to wrestle with. But Jesus didn't mean for that list to be comprehensive. Jesus meant for that list to spur our thinking and see all of the ways where we set very low standards for ourselves and then open ourselves up 
to a whole host of things that we want to do that we just prefer that Jesus not bug us about. Now, if you want to know what grace is, here's what grace is. Grace is you going through this list and saying guilty, 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 guilty. Before Jesus, that's a death sentence. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, your guilt and my guilt in these situations is covered by the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus. But because I know that, because I know the great price that was paid to absolve me of final judgment over things like my angry spirit and my lustful heart and a whole host of other things that we see on the pages of Scripture, why would I continually present myself to those impulses? Why would I continually live a life that appears is in service of my master sin? If in light of the mercy of Jesus, I have been given a choice to have a new and a better master, why wouldn't I instead present my whole self to him and have him remake my heart to where I'm not fighting my impulses to do good and honor him, but I actually become a person who wants to do good and honor him. Why would I live any other life than to live a life in service of that kind and loving master? Sin or grace does not give you license to sin. It gives you an opportunity to serve a new master who can change your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.